Hello and welcome to this Climate 201 episode from Physical Attraction, where we're continuing our series on negative emissions technologies. In the last few episodes in classic Physical Attraction fashion, we went into some pretty in-depth discussions of negative emissions in general. We talked about how negative emissions have taken on a greater and greater role in many different projections of how climate change policy is going to go, and we've talked about some of the pernicious effects that this might have on our ability to address climate change. Now that we've done that and we've put that important context in place, I want to discuss some of the actual specific technologies and methods that have been proposed to deliver negative emissions. Again, we're now going to be able to get into some of the advantages, disadvantages, limitations and co-benefits from pursuing some of these different policies, and just really the details of what needs to be done to make negative emissions at scale a reality. But first, let's just have a quick recap here. I front-loaded the caveats and downsides of negative emissions and the depressing historical story of how we have come to view them as a saviour technology for climate change targets to make absolutely sure that there's no one in my audience left who thinks that they are a silver bullet that can solve the climate problem, that we're not going to invent some sort of technology that will magically fix our climate change issues. I have urged you to remember the poorly coined Hornigold's Law. Any action that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere in the form of negative emissions has to be on a similar scale to the actions that are putting it into the atmosphere. Whatever we do, if it's going to have a significant global impact, beyond just creating some pretty headlines for the companies that do it and governments that pursue some research into it, it's going to have to be a very large endeavour, a very large scale action, and you're going to have to think about ways of creating that endeavour and ensuring that it takes place. So for example, if you want to have machines that will suck CO2 out of the atmosphere in an equivalent way to the transport industry putting it into the atmosphere, you'll need to build millions of those machines the size of cars. That sort of thing is what we need to think about here. Some people look at the technical feasibility problems and the moral hazard and they just totally discard negative emissions and say they're not going to happen, that they're a complete fantasy and that they won't contribute to what we're trying to do at all. Now, I don't quite think that is the case. And I am doing this series because of that, so I'll explain briefly now why I think it is worth talking about these things. Firstly, if you have negative emissions available, they do give you some substantial flexibility, and this is really the reason why the models so often like to have negative emissions in there. From a purely technocratic point of view, this is the sort of solution that economists absolutely love. Imagine that you have some magical machine that allows you to deliver negative emissions and it costs you $50 per tonne of CO2. Well, that then sets the backstop for the price of avoiding a tonne of CO2. The upper limit for the cost of dealing with that will be to emit it away and then remove it through some other method. So, for example, if you set the carbon price at $50 a tonne, the theory goes that companies would then do everything that's cheaper. So, for example... Let's say it's cheaper to avoid a tonne of CO2 emissions by retiring a coal-fired power plant and replacing it with renewables or nuclear once the price of CO2 is factored in. All of those things would happen first, and then eventually, the most expensive way of avoiding that tonne of CO2 would be the negative emissions. But that sets the backstop. That's the most money you're ever going to spend to avoid a tonne of CO2 emissions. So, you know, the, the idea of this economist is you set this carbon price and industry will automatically do everything that's cheaper than the carbon price to avoid emissions. And then any remaining emissions get mopped up through negative emissions sources. This is how things work in the fantastical land inhabited by economists and policy wonks and so on, where we can implement this global carbon price at the same level everywhere, and everyone is always making rational decisions that maximise their advantage, and so on. But there is a grain of truth to it in that you do need this stuff to decarbonise hard to decarbonise sectors. Now I also think that in reality there is a market for negative emissions beyond the sheer economic efficiency of it, 
purely based on what people and organisations are actually capable of doing, and purely because the potential administrative burden of doing it will be so much less. Imagine a world where these large-scale negative emissions industry exists that will allow you to sell genuine negative emissions at $50 per tonne. Now, it's going to be much easier for me, as an individual, to fork out enough money to cancel out CO2 emissions associated with my life than it would be for me to reduce those emissions to zero by other means. I can stop flying, I can use public transport or walk or have an electric car, but practically speaking, most of us don't have a realistic choice to ensure that everything we buy has zero carbon footprint. It's not feasible through consumer choice in today's world. But it would be possible for me to cancel out my climate impact through these negative emissions if they existed, and it may well be easier on a purely administrative basis to do that. So if it's done badly, obviously it's very similar to buying climate indulgences. But if it's done well, it can make a positive impact. And for certain companies, I can imagine many of them will want to get a zero carbon footprint. They may well prefer someone to bury the equivalent carbon rather than going through all of their operations and ensuring that each of them is done sustainably. And this is of course especially true for cases like airlines and other hard to decarbonise sectors, where the cost of avoiding emissions completely is probably going to be prohibitive. And again, if the choice is between simply not flying at all because we have no way of getting carbon-neutral flights, and I have to say that electric planes that can do what modern planes can do with fossil fuels are a long way off yet, then I think that people would prefer to pay more and have the flexibility that negative emissions allow for. And it will, of course, unfortunately, we have to consider these things, it will be more politically palatable than telling industries that they simply must cease to operate because they have no way to decarbonise at all. And even climate policy advisors like the Committee on Climate Change They find it very difficult to get a country like the UK all the way down to net zero without some amount of negative emissions for these sectors that would be too costly to decarbonise otherwise. There are, of course, all of the arguments that are in place that we've discussed that this sort of thing could potentially help a just transition. In many cases, it is the fossil fuel industry that has the expertise and the ability to bury CO2 underground. They're currently doing it in enhanced oil recovery to help extract more fossil fuels, which is clearly not what we want. But in a world where we change the incentive structure, it's not impossible that some of the people currently involved in that industry could help clean up after themselves. The problem that I would say, of course, is that you actually have to have teeth when you enforce the regulations or the carbon price on these people to ensure that this isn't just a fig leaf to justify the continued existence of the fossil fuel industry, as the critics would have it. You know, in an ideal world, I would be saying, now that these fossil fuel companies are so cheap and so uh, low down on the stock market and struggling, um, as I as I write this in 2021, it would be a good idea to nationalise them and run them with a view to shutting them down. But I have read other people talk about this, and they do say part of the issue with that is once you nationalise them, the government still may want to run them for a profit and still may have the same incentive structure there. So, you know, whatever it may be that we can do with these things... Um, it's going to be a very difficult task to repurpose the fossil fuel industry towards doing negative emissions and doing carbon capture and storage. But it is potentially possible in, in a world where people are much, much more serious about climate policy that something like this could happen. The other slightly darker reasons to be interested in this stuff is that these technologies really are, aside from solar geoengineering, which we'll discuss in the future, the only way that we can actually hope to cool down the climate. As we've said many times, climate change, especially in terms of CO2 emissions, is a cumulative problem. It only gets worse over time, unfortunately. And that means that the rate of extreme weather events we're currently seeing is here to stay. It will only get worse, and it's already causing a great deal of damage. Sea level rise is going to continue to some extent regardless of what we do. 
There's a very slow, ongoing process now where ice sheets are melting, and that will carry on happening, even if our emissions drop to zero now. Now, it is the case, of course, that the faster our emissions drop, the less of this will be locked in for the future. But there is some certain level of sea level rise that is going to be locked in for the future already. It's necessary for us to adapt to a certain extent to the climate that we have now lumbered ourselves with. But you can see that we may also want to have some ability to try and reduce CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere in the long term. And for that reason, we do have to investigate the possible technologies and techniques that may allow us to do this, while bearing in mind the fact that if we are going to do it, it's going to need to be a gargantuan effort, in the same way as our current effort to unintentionally modify the Earth's climate through carbon emissions has been gargantuan. Finally, of course, there is the point that it may already be too late, or swiftly becoming too late, for us to achieve our global climate targets without some kind of negative emissions. We criticise models and their limitations all the time on this show, but there is no denying that they rely on negative emissions for targets like 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, in large part because of how big the task ahead of us is to decarbonise the planet, to reverse these centuries of growing emissions, and to turn them around to zero in a few short decades. And we don't have much time for that. Personally, Unfortunately, I think it is very likely that we will exceed carbon budgets for 1.5 degrees in the very near future, if we haven't already, and I think 2 degrees is going to be a very difficult target. In these circumstances, then, there is an argument for exploring negative emissions to try and understand whether it's worthwhile doing this and pursuing this to try and get us below these temperature thresholds. Now, as I've said before, you can overstate the importance of these temperature thresholds. It's not like 2.1 degrees of Celsius of warming is some apocalypse and 1.9 is just fine. You know, the, the practical difference between those two is quite likely to be relatively small. But that said, it may well be that you want to at least explore the possibility of bringing yourself back down to a slightly more stable temperature over time. And I think in that case, you do need to understand what negative emissions can actually do for us and the limitations that they have and have a proper grown up conversation about that, which is what I hope that I'm doing here. The reality is that if it does turn out that these hard to decarbonise sectors, if it's a choice between continuing to have aeroplanes flying around, you, you, you can see the argument that if it's a choice between continuing to have such things as flights and not doing so for some decades, then there is an argument that a negative emissions industry that works would fit into that somewhere. Now, does this mean that we should just rely on them to mop up all of the uh, emissions from an ever-expanding aviation sector? No. No, we need to limit the flights as much as we possibly can, and I think that's something important to think about too. But nevertheless, there will always be a market for this sort of thing in a world where we had climate policies that were sufficient to get us down to absolute zero. And I think that in that context, we need to understand what it is we're talking about here, how feasible it is, and, and what would be required to manifest this future, even if it only leads us to the conclusion that in fact we do have to try and decarbonise these hard-to-decarbonise sectors in some other way, because doing this is so difficult. So let's get on to the science of this then. Now, one point here, of course, to understand is the nature of the carbon cycle, because there are many negative emissions techniques that attempt, in one way or another, to alter some of the natural flows of CO2 in the carbon cycle, in an attempt to really counteract what humans are doing. So we can think about the Earth system here. In the Earth system, carbon is stored in a number of different reservoirs which change on many different timescales. Carbon is stored in the soils beneath our feet. It's stored in the fossilised pool of fossil fuels buried deep underground. Some of it is dissolved in the surface ocean. Some of it is dissolved in the deep ocean. On the land, plants take up CO2 from the atmosphere and temporarily store it as part of their plant body. 
and when they die, of course, some of the carbon sinks down and forms part of the soil again, while some will be emitted as they decompose and go back into the atmosphere as another reservoir. A similar process is happening in the oceans all the time. There are lots of phytoplankton there, which perform the same functions. They grow by photosynthesizing and taking up CO2, and when they die, they can either decompose on the surface and release that CO2 back to the atmosphere, or they can sink into the deep ocean, and their calcium carbonate shells can sink down to the ocean with them, and that will form part of the carbon sink that is in the ocean. Now, the annual flows between these different reservoirs are pretty vast. For example, ordinarily, photosynthesis might take up 120 gigatons of carbon per year. That's around 12 years of our current day emissions, from the atmosphere and into the biosphere. But this is, of course, mostly balanced by the decomposition of plants later on. So you can see from that, and if you know the Keeling curve, which is the curve of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, uh, Google it if you haven't seen it before, you will see that it's the sort of wiggly lines that you're actually seeing, and that is the boreal forests in the northern hemisphere, uh, photosynthesizing and dying off and then coming back, these uh, annual uh, cycles in the forestry that uh, are equivalent to several years for our emissions uh, ending up in the atmosphere. So when we consider all of these different cycles that are taking place, we now have to look at this from the perspective of humans. So our activities in terms of burning fossil fuels, cement production, changing how we use the land, etc. For example, deforestation. These push around 10 extra gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. The carbon cycle then partitions this again. About half of it goes into the atmosphere and remains there, increasing CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, which is of course what causes climate change and warming the planet. The other half is split between the biosphere, forming parts of new plants, or the land carbon sink as it's sometimes called, and being dissolved into the ocean. So you can see that the idea here is to kind of perturb this cycle in other ways that cancel out the little imbalance that we are producing through our activities compared to the, the big portions of this carbon cycle, uh, with carbon being exchanged between the oceans and the atmosphere and the biosphere and so on. So the idea behind a lot of different negative emissions methods is to create a new sink or enhance the flows into a particular natural carbon sink. So for example, carbon capture and storage liquefies CO2 and intends to bury it underground in the same place that fossil fuels once were, enhancing that deep sink in the land. Afforestation, if it's going to work as a negative emissions tool, needs you to permanently increase the size of the biosphere and the amount of plants that exist on the planet, so that that sink of CO2 is bigger than it was before. And there are other ideas, like, for example, making the ocean more alkaline, or trying to encourage the growth of these plankton with iron fertilisation, which would aim to, in turn, suck in extra CO2 by perturbing parts of this cycle, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. So we're going to start with the main technology that is considered in most scenarios at the moment. And we've mentioned this already, this is BECS, or Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. So BECS is conceptually pretty simple. The idea is that you grow crops that can be turned into biofuels, you process them into biofuels, at this point they're obviously storing carbon, then you burn them in power plants to generate electricity, and you capture the CO2 that is produced in this way from the flue of the power plant and bury it underground. The whole process, if done correctly, is then net negative. At least some fraction of the CO2 captured by the plants during their lifetime ends up buried deep underground, and is effectively therefore permanently removed from the atmosphere. 
Now there are several reasons that the climate change scenarios love BEX so much, and really for this you have to understand what the models that they often use, the integrated assessment models, are good at doing and what they focus on. They tend to be thinking about climate change in a sort of sectoral way, they'll have a robust model of things like the electricity generation and transportation sectors, and of course they're also told to do things in the most cost-effective way possible. In this sense then, you can see why the models love BEX so much. You can, at the very least, offset the cost of your negative emissions by selling the electricity that you're getting from burning the biofuels. Other means of negative emissions, which essentially just involve the cleanup part, don't really produce any beneficial side projects, and they wouldn't probably make any kind of profit by themselves. But you can imagine a world where at least some of the cost of delivering these negative emissions is compensated for by the fact that you're generating electricity at the same time. And as we often discuss, the whole point is that many of these models are essentially just told to get you in below a certain carbon budget at minimal cost. If cost is what you're emphasising, and the model decides that it's going to be cheaper to do that with negative emissions than cuts that happen in the near term, then it's going to be very keen to do that in the form of BEX as a least cost means of delivering those negative emissions. The other advantage that BEX has, of course, is in that electricity generation modelling side of things. Biofuels can often quite directly replace fossil fuels, at least in the models. For electricity generation, they provide you with power that is easy to switch on and off to fulfil peaks and troughs in demand and supply, which becomes more and more important as you have more renewables on the grid. So many of these scenarios like to have a big buffer of biofuel power plants which are providing baseload and negative emissions at the same time. For example, I can take a scenario from Glenn Peters, who, as we talked about, is the expert on these IAMs and these integrated assessment models. Specifically, the image 3.01 scenario for 1.5 degrees C of warming. Now, you can explore all of these different scenarios and what they imply for how different sectors' carbon emissions are going to evolve on a database called IASA. That's I-I-A-S-A. But unfortunately, I have no idea how accessible that is for folks without an academic login. I think it is, but you may need to register for it. If you can't get hold of it, look up Glenn Peters because he publishes lots of great analysis of this online on his Twitter feed and on his websites, so I strongly recommend that. He's doing a great job of communicating the science and the policy implications behind these IAMs, regardless of how you might feel about the IAMs themselves, um, to the general public. Anyhow, this scenario, this 1.5 degrees Celsius compatible scenario, envisions around 18 gigatons of CO2 being removed annually by BEX alone by about 2070. This means that you need to have a lot of your electricity from biomass. In some of these scenarios, by 2050, you're getting more electricity from biomass than you are from nuclear, solar or wind. This is important to note because right now, biomass does not produce that much electricity. People do burn a lot of biomass, and that is to say anything that's biological, so we're talking biofuels, yes, but also wood, uh, other plant matter. People do burn it a lot for their primary energy consumption, yeah, particularly in sort of traditional wood-burning stoves and so on for heat and for, of course, cooking and all that sort of thing. But actually, in terms of producing electricity, it's not used that much. Globally, in 2016, it was around 2.5% of global electricity consumption. But if you look at some of these high BEX scenarios, by 2050, bioenergy is accounting for about a third of global electricity production, 
So it would have to ramp up by more than 10 times in terms of its global electricity production, and electricity demand will also be increasing in these scenarios, so it's even more than that. Now one point to make here is that another reason BECS can be modelled as cheap is that it can use some of the same infrastructure that is currently burning fossil fuels, which means you don't need to abandon that infrastructure entirely. For example, in the UK, we get around 11% of our electricity from biofuels at the moment, but a lot of that is coming from converted coal-fired power plants. For example, the company Drax used to work on coal-fired power plants, but has converted most of them now into biomass burners. So you can sort of see how a transition to lower than net zero than net negative CO2 emissions might happen in these models. Fossil fuel power plants would be converted to burn biofuels, and then you tax CCS onto them so that they can bury their emissions. Either step on its own reduces emissions, both steps together means that, at least in theory, the plant is now providing net negative emissions. And in fact, if you do this with enough generating infrastructure, the sheer amount of BECs you have going on means that the power sector can become a net negative emitter of CO2, and actually offset emissions from other sectors, which are assumed to be a lot harder to decarbonise, like transportation for example. I want to talk about the CCS part of BECs in another episode, because as you might imagine, storing billions of tonnes of CO2 underground is not a trivial process. But first I want to talk about the bioenergy part, because this is where BECs has come in for a lot of flack from the climate community and the environmental community, much of it deserved, I will say. One of the things you have to keep in mind here is that the amount of net negative emissions that you actually get from this whole process depends on the entire life cycle that's involved here. For example, if processing the plants into biofuel requires energy or results in CO2 emissions, then you need to take that into account. The same is true of things like transportation of the fuel, and of course, you'll hope that your carbon capture is efficient as it possibly can be at scrubbing CO2 from the exhaust of the plant. So you can see that there's going to be different levels at which different types of biofuel and different BECs will be useful. For example, if you are running a power plant that is a few miles down the road from a paper factory that's producing loads of waste output that doesn't get used for anything else, and you can burn that waste and use BECs on that, that's obviously going to be a very efficient and low emissions total life cycle for what's going on here. But if, alternatively, you have a power plant that is powered by biofuels which have to be generated and processed from plants which are flown in from a country many miles away, that, that's obviously going to be a much higher emissions life cycle for your BECs. So not all BECs is created equal. And similarly, there's going to be some BECs, particularly the stuff with waste biomass that is not being used for other purposes, uh, which is going to be easier and perhaps more effectively negatively emitting than other types of BECs. So small-scale BECs may well be, uh, in particular niches, much, much easier and much more environmentally friendly than this sort of large-scale industrial BECs that is appealed to in these models. And once you've used up some of the available biofuel in terms of waste and so on, it might be a case that it's diminishing returns as you try and do more and more. And of course, the impact that you'll have on the environment for sourcing the biofuels becomes much, much bigger. You know, when you model a process like this, that you simply obtain biofuels and burn them, etc., you are going to have to make assumptions about how people are actually going to do that. And the problem with that is that not all biofuels are alike, and not all of them are going to be as desirable as they might be in the model. So, you know, depending on how these biofuel systems are fueled, uh, if it's done in a particularly negative way, it can have unintended consequences. 
So I want to talk about that with reference to something I go on about a lot as a piece of evidence for a climate policy that sounded good in theory, but didn't work so well in practice. In the United States, there is a long history of government policies that support bioethanol and biofuels of that kind. There, in fact, there's been a mandate that many vehicles have to run on fuels that are a 10% blend of bioethanol with their normal diesel. There is a mandate that many vehicles have to run on fuels that are at least a 10% blend of bioethanol. Part of the idea here, at least in theory, was that it would reduce CO2 emissions. Although, of course, to get it through US Congress back in 2007, it was necessary to sell it as part of the US becoming energy independent and energy secure, rather than primarily as a climate change policy. Some crops are better to use for biofuel feedstocks than others, simply because of how they grow and how they can be processed into fuel. There are obviously plenty of ways of measuring this. One metric would be to work out how much oil you get per hectare of crop. By that metric, you'd want to be growing crops like palm oil, coconut, walnut, castor beans, oilseed rape, which we get a lot of in the UK, uh, for the oils that you can produce from them. For ethanol, which is made in a slightly different way, the best crops are these sort of high-energy crops like sugarcane, sugar beet, sorghum, etc. The trouble with simply just imposing a mandate telling everyone to use biofuels, though, is that the mandates to start using biofuels don't emerge into a market that's totally devoid of any other incentives and other players. You can't guarantee that people will automatically start producing biofuels in the most environmentally sustainable or sensible way that results in the greatest cuts to emissions or that results in the most efficient biofuels because of these other factors that are in play, and principally the fact that everyone is seeking profits. The US is corn country, and big corn was very interested in the potential to make some money out of the ethanol mandate. After all, they're producing a lot of corn. If it can attract a higher price once converted into ethanol than it can as food, then they'll do that instead. The net result of this, a decade or so on from the initial policy, is that yes, we do have around 10% of the gasoline in the US used being ethanol, bioethanol of some kind. But we also have that 95% of that comes from corn bioethanol. So 95% of the production of bioethanol in the US is made out of corn. In fact, up to a third of US corn production is now converted into bioethanol, which helps to provide just 10% of the gasoline that the US uses for driving. Obviously, this process has basically reached its limit. And clearly, it's also had an impact on food prices, if you have a third of the corn America is producing being used for this bioethanol, which would probably be lower if corn bioethanol wasn't a thing. Indeed, back in 2013, the EPA did a study by Nicole Condon and others, which suggested that for each extra billion gallons of ethanol produced from corn, it tends to jack up corn prices by 2-3%. to This would then mean that the 15 billion or so gallons of corn bioethanol the US is producing annually has boosted corn prices by 30-40%. to And you know, that's really not insignificant when we're talking about one of the world's most important staple crops, and it's boosting food prices, this is disproportionately going to impact the poorest people who depend on that corn to live. The tragedy, of course, is that corn is not at all one of the best crops to convert into ethanol. If you were trying to come up with a plan to get the maximum biofuel at minimum land use, leaving production for food, you would pick more efficient crops. But because money is what's prioritised, and because we had all of these big players who wanted to make corn bioethanol and had a surplus of corn, we end up with all the ethanol coming from a crop that produces half as much fuel per acre as sugar beet, and would therefore require twice as much land to produce the same amount of biofuel. 
You might naively think that biofuels are supposed to be carbon neutral, because after all, in theory, the CO2 that they take up as plants is released when they're burned. But if you take into account the whole life cycle of producing the plants, producing the fuel from the plants, the emissions that come from the refinery, from transportation, etc., then you find that the net effects of using the corn bioethanol is to reduce emissions by about 40% compared to using pure gasoline. So when you look at it as a whole, the ethanol mandate may well have been a good policy for some people. It may have reduced net emissions from the transport sector by around 4%. That's the 10% ethanol use and around a 40% reduction in net emissions from using ethanol compared to gas. But to do that, it's cost you around a third of US corn production and countless hectares of land. Land and water which now can't be used to grow food for the world or indeed other more efficient biofuels. And yeah, I'm going to get on my hobby horse and say that when you take a step back and consider how inefficient all of these mass gas-guzzling cars are, the average American car uses nearly twice as much fuel as the average European car, and, you know, they're not that different in terms of how they're used. And things like how we lay out our cities and towns to involve so much personal car ownership and so little public transport. You feel like we might have been able to get 4% emissions reduction from transportation in much, much better ways and at much lower cost if that's what we were really after, by pulling on some of these other levers of having more public transport or lighter cars or electric vehicles or whatever. And from here, it seems like a bit of a dead end. In fact, most fossil fuel cars can't even run on fuel that contains more than 10% ethanol, as it gradually degrades their engines to use it. There are some cars that have specifically modified engines that can go up to 85%, but even then, most fuel stations in the US can't even supply ethanol 85 fuel. So you can see that this whole bioethanol mandate, in many ways, as a climate policy, looks like a bit of a dead end. It it doesn't seem like it's going to be able to provide any substantial emissions reductions, and it's done lots of harmful things in terms of jacking up food prices, which affect other things that we worry about. So this story is important to illustrate a few different aspects that you need to be wary of when it comes to biofuels, then. The first is this life cycle emissions problem. If you produce biofuels in a bad way, or in an inefficient way, you might not get that much net negative emissions from them. Another point is that biofuels are always going to compete, directly or indirectly, with land, water, and things that can be used for growing food crops. We already have starving people in the world. Climate change will put additional pressure on food production. Particularly if nations get richer and start to consume like wealthy nations do, i.e. wastefully consuming food and consuming a lot more meat than they do vegetables then this is going to put even more emphasis on land scarcity, land availability, and food production. Food, water, and sustainable topsoil, all of this stuff is going to become more scarce. And these are not small issues. We know this is happening and that it will continue, probably, to get worse. And unfortunately, this is the environment into which you're asking the land sector and the agricultural sector to cancel out lots of emissions from other sectors. And I I think it's difficult. Then, of course, you have this market incentive problem. Sure, in your model, where you're modelling the maximum potential of biofuels, you're going to have all of these things working brilliantly, right? People will be using quote-unquote marginal land. People will always be planting the most suitable crops. People will be processing them in the best possible ways. But is that actually what would happen if you just say tomorrow that you have a target to convert dozens of fossil fuel plants into bioenergy plants? Or instead, would the big market players rush to fill that gap and do everything in the cheapest possible way? 
which is not necessarily going to be anything like the most sustainable way, or the way that maximises the overall amount of biofuel you can get, or a way that is good for other aspects of the environment or food security. Because that is exactly what has happened on the major occasions where we've looked to biofuels to try and reduce emissions. So you'll have to come up with other policies at the very least that will stop this sort of thing from happening if you're going to call on bioenergy with carbon capture and storage to give you these negative emissions that you need in other parts of your system. And finally, you have this problem which is the flip side of saying, oh, it's much easier to do this because the infrastructure already exists and you can slot it nicely into what's already there. That is an argument that's made for just replacing fossil fuels with biofuels, as we saw in the ethanol mandate. But the thing is, we can see now that corn bioethanol was obviously never going to provide carbon-neutral transportation, which is what we ultimately need. Even if you devoted all of US corn production to this thing, it would only ever account for 30% of the gasoline that's being used. And it was only ever feasible to convert around 10% of the gasoline to this ethanol for use in these cars. People might say that that's better than nothing, but in the process, you perpetuate the use of the internal combustion engine. If we had said instead, OK, we're not going to cut emissions from transportation by using biofuels. Instead, we need to travel less. We need more public transportation and better infrastructure. We need to work on switching private cars to shared model or electric and generating electricity renewably. Then we might be in a better place and we might have more food in the world as well. Again, there are other problems with other perverse incentives in the marketplace too. Much of the biofuel that isn't corn bioethanol in the US is imported from Brazil, where it's made from palm oil. And you've probably seen quite a bit in the news about palm oil, with more and more people trying to boycott it in their products, because the Amazon is being deforested in order to produce it in the first place. So again, unless you are imposing strict rules to avoid people just doing the quickest and cheapest thing, the biofuel processes will probably end up being a lot more environmentally destructive and a lot less actually useful for protecting the environment than you would hope they would and that you can model they would if you're making all these good assumptions about how people will react to these policies. And in this you have to look at the political economy of this more broadly. Obviously farmers are extremely important to many districts in the US Congress. Corn farmers and the corn lobby are a big deal in American politics. You know, particularly in Iowa, you US politics hawks out there will know how important Iowa is. Farmers have disproportionate weight, again, due to institutions like the Senate, which stacks power towards rural communities and away from urban ones, at least by population. Farmers are an important constituency in most countries, politically. Well, a third of their business is not really about selling corn as food anymore, but about ethanol feedstock and the price of ethanol. So now you have this big, powerful constituency that wants to keep the ethanol gravy train running and the corn-to-bioethanol business going, and they're not going to want other competition from other types of biofuel. They will oppose policies that will reduce the price of ethanol, or the dependence on ethanol. So actually, by trying to create this uh, extra market, these extra incentives, we suddenly have a whole bunch of people politically who are going to be lobbying against types of climate policy that would reduce our dependence on ethanol. And the fossil fuel industry now has an ally in some of these farming lobbies. And I don't mean to say this as anything offensive to farmers, you know, in the same way as you look at these industries and so on that are producing greenhouse gas emissions in what they do, we give people a social license to pursue profit, and the bioethanol mandate didn't say anything about not using corn. You know, these people are just trying to feed their families, as they would, as they would put it, as they would argue it. 
but this is the point of designing policy that's supposed to try and prevent climate change. We have to try and foresee how these things can go wrong. Otherwise, we will end up in this situation which arguably is not much better and in some ways is worse than it would have been if we hadn't tried to do this at all. The promise of biofuels has justified everyone continuing to produce and use internal combustion engines when we could have been switching over to more efficient and easier to renewably supply electric engines. And then when the biofuels actually get used, it's created this new constituency which is cooperating with the oil industry as much as it's really competing with it. And you can see that similar things might happen in other areas of climate too. I don't want to get on too much of a tangent here, but for example, a big problem that the UK and many other cold countries have is in decarbonising its heating of homes. This currently depends a lot on natural gas boilers. There is a movement afoot to replace part of that natural gas in the grid with hydrogen. That will start in the next few years, there's a few big government-backed projects to do it. Hydrogen is often considered a green fuel, because when you burn it, the waste product is just water. And you can produce it with renewable electricity if you electrolyse water. That is to say, you run the current through water and separate the H2 from the O. Well, it's true that in principle, when you burn hydrogen, you just get water. And it's true that in principle, you can produce hydrogen through renewable electricity and electrolysis. But most hydrogen at the moment is not produced with renewable electricity. Most hydrogen at the moment is produced by processing methane and natural gas into hydrogen in a process called methane steam reforming, which emits CO2. And of course, if it's only going to be feasible to replace 10% of the natural gas with hydrogen, then you have an exactly similar and analogous thing to what happened with bioethanol. You're just delaying the hard problem of replacing the natural gas network entirely with other forms of heating. And you're perpetuating the role that fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel infrastructure which revolves around pipelines and burning things in all of our lives, you know? And there will still be a big demand for natural gas to process into hydrogen in this methane steam reforming. So you can see that obviously there would be ways to get around this, right? You could insist that all of the hydrogen that's being put into the heat network has to be produced by electrolysis. But even then, you know, it's not entirely clear how this is going to evolve and the ramifications of it. So this is hardly unique to America or to biofuels, but it's an important trend to keep an eye on that your climate policies are really doing what you want them to do when you look at them in the round and how they affect other things. Similarly, you can look at the UK's biofuel and biomass for electricity burning. The UK is a pretty densely populated country and notoriously not exactly tropical. We talked about Drax before as a big contributor to this, that a lot of their 11% of our electricity that comes from biomass is due to Drax. To create that electricity, Drax burns around 13 million tonnes of wood pellets every year. But a huge amount of those wood pellets are imported into the UK by boat from forests that are being cut down in America. Obviously this hits the life cycle effectiveness of actually producing biofuel in this way. But again, if you allow market forces to take over, then if it's cheaper to import the pellets from the US rather than use locally grown ones, then they'll just do it, even if the CO2 cost is greater. Then of course there's the actual management of the forests themselves, and this comes back to the concerns that you can have around biofuel sourcing and its impact on the wider environment. Because if we turn the planet into one huge biofuel feedstock to try and save the planet from climate change, haven't we damaged many of the things that we're trying to save? According to The Ecologist magazine, quote, 
Much of Drax's pellets come from pellet company Enviva, which sources wood from clear-cut wetland forests, important ecosystems which are home to a wide variety of animal and plant species, and have been classified as global biodiversity hotspots by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which also considers them some of the most biologically important habitats in North America. Many of the species who live in these forests are now threatened by habitat fragmentation from logging and land conversion. According to the Natural Resources Defence Council, it is difficult to restore these forests after logging because they take a long time to mature, and being logged once can alter flooding patterns, reducing the diversity of plant and tree species when the forest does eventually regenerate. Drax also sources some platelets from plantations which have taken the place of some forests in some areas of the southern United States. The biomass industry points to these plantations as evidence that its activities are not reducing forest cover. But a monoculture plantation, where you just have one species of tree, does not support as many other species as a natural forest does. It's more likely to deplete the soil and water, and it may rely on spraying with agrochemicals. End quote. Of course, the irony is that Drax then turns around and hires a lot of the same PR companies that Shell and other fossil fuel companies do in order to influence the government, influence public opinion and perceptions, clean up their image, and make people think that these wood pellets are really a much more sustainable solution than they actually are, and that Drax is no longer a nasty coal company, but a renewable pioneer. In the meantime, as corn bioethanol does, they can all benefit from these green subsidies even when it's questionable how green what they're doing really is. Drax gets around £540 million a year in subsidies for using these biomass pellets. Indeed, they do have the only currently operating BEX facility in the UK, which sequesters a nominal one tonne a year of CO2 to prove that it can be done in principle. So when we talk about this as some hypothetical way that BEX might end up being evolved, you know, not with these ideal plants, but instead with wood pellets that are imported from forests in the US, I mean, this is how it's being developed now. This is what's going on, this is the most likely pathway that you can see here, without us having some serious conversations and some serious policy about how we can ensure that any BEX we do deploy is done in a more sensible and sustainable way. Okay, so we've outlined some of the classic problems with using biofuels using a couple of big case studies from the UK and the US. What does this mean for BEX overall then? What about those scenarios where we're leaning on 18 billion tonnes of CO2 of carbon removal from BEX? So we'd be removing half of today's emissions every single year with BEX. Is that still feasible? Well, in defence of the climate science and climate modelling community, a lot of eyebrows were raised when these scenarios started appearing that use so much BEX. And in recent years, there's been a distinct BEX lash, with plenty of studies pointing out that attempting to use this much biofuel will probably cause us to run into other severe ecological limits. Some scientists have pointed, for example, to the importance of planting the correct crops in the correct way and the potential for certain types of BEX to backfire. So, for example, Dr Anna Harper had a good research paper, which she wrote up for the general public in Carbon Brief under the title Why BEX Might Not Produce Negative Emissions at All. In this, she points out that in some stringent scenarios, we use so much BEX that we end up cutting down forests in some high-latitude regions to produce the biofuels. Of course, this is exactly what's happening for Drax. Then, depending on the plants you grow, you can actually end up emitting more carbon by displacing the forests than you remove with the BEX. If you grow miscanthus, a very efficient biofuel, then the whole process is carbon negative. But if you grow maize, which is less efficient but obviously more widely cultivated, 
then it's actually better to leave the forests alone altogether, and the net impact of your BEX activity will be to emit more carbon to the atmosphere. The problem here is that the initial model assumes that everyone will grow the best possible biofuel in the best possible places. And as I've pointed out, if you leave everything up to the free market and the power of incumbents, and not an idealised model which is pathologically trying to reduce carbon emissions at least cost, you're obviously not going to get the most carbon efficient solution, because other factors will clearly be at play here. Even if BEX doesn't backfire completely, if it can only produce a tiny amount of negative emissions in the end when actually deployed, we'd obviously be relying on technologies that we can't necessarily assume will do what we want them to do when we scale them up like this. Dr Harper rightly points out that everything becomes a lot easier if we can reduce our food consumption, and especially reduce the consumption of red meat, which takes up so much land and water space. Then there's not so much competition for land, and you can plant more efficient types of BEX crops in different areas. Indeed, in confidence, when I talk to a lot of scientists about negative emissions, they're convinced that BEX will probably end up playing a much, much smaller role than it does in these scenarios. And if we do end up in a future with substantial negative emissions, which is a big if, then it won't be some mad BEX paradise where we remove billions of billions of tonnes of CO2 with BEX alone. But for the sake of argument, it's worth talking about what that BEX paradise would actually look like, so that you can see why people think it's so unlikely. The Grantham Institute for Climate Change Research here in the UK, they released a briefing paper on this called BEX Deployment, a Reality Check. Essentially, this paper takes the integrated assessment model scenarios, you know, the ones that are coming up with these 18 billion tonnes figures seriously, and then asks what the consequences would be if they were actually carried out. Across the IPCC scenarios, which are compatible with 1.5 degrees of warming, they found that on average, BEX removes 12 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere a year by 2100 with a range between 0 and 22 gigatons of CO2 a year. This would require, they argue, between 0.4 billion and 1.2 billion hectares of cropland, equivalent to between 25 and 80% of current global cropland use, and that we'd also need to have substantial inputs of water, nitrogen, phosphorus and other fertilisers. They also note that these models do seem to take some level of account of the extra CO2 emissions associated with the whole life cycle of this BEX so it's not modelled as being maximally efficient, but it is pretty good. So for example, a maximally efficient BEX with no supply chain emissions would remove 26 gigatons. They find that in the models, they model it as removing 22.5 gigatons, but we don't know how clear it is that all of these extra emissions from the whole life cycle would really only be a small fraction of the emissions that would be removed otherwise. Now you might be thinking, Okay, they estimate that we need between 25-80% to 80 of global cropland now, but we have seen in the past that better agricultural techniques have produced higher yields of crops, which have confounded people who've said that we'll run out of food or space for crops in the past. Isn't it possible that higher yields in the future will mean that we'll need less land? Well, unfortunately, they find that these things are already assumed in models. On average, the models assume that crop yields improve by between 0.6 and 2.3% a year, leading to crop yields that more than double by 2100. This is not impossible. Historically, over the last 50 years, they have improved by about 1.6% a year. But this improvement has been declining lately, and it's likely to decline even further in a climate change world, unless we can get some new breakthrough with GMOs or a similar technique. Now I could go on and on describing this report, which is very good on many of the technical issues surrounding this large-scale BEX. 
but I think at this stage you're getting the picture. If we're going to have to devote half of the world's cropland to these negative emissions just to clean up our historical mess now, that's a huge undertaking, and it's not at all clear that we'll be able to do that and still have good food security for the 9-10 billion people who might be alive at that point. There is a real concern with the carbon accountancy here. Is the total net impact of everything you're doing really carbon negative? There is a real concern that the biofuels which end up being used are not going to be the ones that are best for carbon, but the cheapest or most convenient to produce. And we've seen that with biofuels in the past. The people running the BEX plants may not optimise to deliver the maximum negative emissions, but instead the most baseload power, or heat. You can imagine a pattern whereby wealthy nations tout their green credentials for burning biofuels grown on someone else's land, and imported. You can imagine all of the negative consequences if farmers get richer by growing biofuel cash crops instead of food for the local population and if they export a lot of their agricultural capacity to produce biofuels, food prices and food insecurity, which will be further damaged by climate change, continue to rise and become a major problem. That's a bit of a nightmare scenario for leaning on BEX this much. Before you even get into any of these technical problems though, it's worth taking a step back and thinking about what the world suggested by these models is actually like. Currently, as I write in January 2021, we have 19 facilities worldwide that are doing some kind of carbon capture and storage. Many of those are in refining natural gas, chemical processes, or making hydrogen. Take those out, and how many fossil fuel-fired power plants do we currently have that are capturing CO2? We have two of them. One of them is the Boundary Dam in Canada, which we'll talk about more in the next episode. One of them is the Petronova coal-fired power plant in the US. Between those two, they are currently capturing 2.4 million tonnes of CO2 a year. It's actually a bit worse than that, because as we've talked about, CCS, the one main use for the CO2 that's captured and liquefied, is in helping us to recover more oil. The CO2 is pushed underground to help them push up more oil. Hilariously then, the Petronova project in Texas, one of only two CCS-equipped fossil fuel power plants, has suspended capturing CO2 which, after all, comes at an energetic cost and interferes with their primary business of generating power. Why have they stopped capturing CO2? Because of how low oil prices are following the demand slump and the COVID-19 collapse. That's right, there are currently two power plants doing CCS, and one of them won't do it because they can't make any money using the CO2 to extract oil at the moment. And of course they get hundreds of millions of dollars of government funding. I'm sure for some people this will tell you everything you need to know about the state of CCS at present. And how likely is it that people will tolerate this sort of thing being scaled up to billions of dollars of government funding? Meanwhile, there are 2,400 coal-fired power plants around the world that are emitting 15 billion tonnes of CO2 a year. So in the world we live in now, we're currently capturing less than 0.01% of the emissions from fossil fuel power generation. In other words, we can't be bothered or as people might say, it's not considered economically feasible, to capture CO2 from the most polluting power plants in the world that exist right now. The incentive structure is just not there to do it. In the BEX world, we're imagining that we'll instead endeavour to suck it out of the atmosphere en masse by converting all of these power plants to CCS plants, and to use biofuels planted across half the world's arable cropland to do it instead. So you can see from all of that that while the Beck's fantasy persists in the economic models and scenarios and so on that we produce with our IAMs, it is quite unlikely to materialise in the real world. No one is seriously planning for it either. If this was going to happen, if this was going to be our future, 
we would see a massive effort to convert fossil fuel powered plants to generation to biofuels, to add CCS to that generation capacity, and we'd need to start doing that now. And we would simply not be seeing either of these things, we're just not seeing them at the moment. According to the International Energy Agency, there's just 10 million tonnes of CCS in the development pipeline out to 2025. We've seen many of these projects been cancelled in previous years, so just because it's in the development pipeline doesn't mean it will actually be developed. These projects are notorious for not materialising on time or under budget. Their scenario wants 30 times that amount by 2030, and then four times that again in just another decade. If people were serious about producing this Bexy-type future, they would be issuing mandates that said that fossil fuel power plants would have to bury at least some fraction of their CO2. They would be converting the fossil fuel power plants to biofuel. They would be seriously scoping out sites for growing the biofuels that are going to grow into these Bex feed crops. They would be dealing with this wasteful corn-to-bioethanol industry, and encouraging farms to grow the crops that are more appropriate to the task of providing all this biofuel. Because if everyone's going to do something as wasteful as corn-to-bioethanol, then it's simply not going to work at the scale that we're talking about here. They would be scaling up the CCS industry, obviously. They would pay people to bury CO2 and actually achieve negative emissions, so that there was some kind of business model for the private sector to glom onto that didn't involve enhanced oil recovery as the only use for CO2. None of these things are seriously happening anywhere, and therefore we can conclude that this hyperbex fantasy will probably stay in models. And don't forget, every year we fail to reduce emissions means that to get to below our climate change targets will require more and more and more becks. So even in the years since some of these scenarios were published, given that emissions haven't started to fall, it's getting more and more unrealistic that this is going to materialise. Now when all these facts become apparent to people, there's often a bit of a shock that these scenarios depend on such a radical transformation of the Earth's surface, of the entire agricultural industry, and of so many of our priorities to clean up CO2 that we're emitting right now. I haven't been as critical of the modelling of BEX as some other authors have. There are people who view this as an obvious fudge in the models to let them hit targets, like 1.5 of warming, that are in practicality probably impossible. Or alternatively, to allow us to pretend that they're still feasible without dramatic near-term cuts to emissions. The reason I have been less critical than I might have been um, is for a few reasons, really. Firstly, I think when we model these scenarios in these models, we have to be realistic about what we're actually doing. It's not an exercise in telling people the best way to tackle climate change. What it is saying is, if you ask this question of the model according to these particular rules, and with these particular assumptions about different technologies, then this is what it's going to take. That's fine, as long as you make it clear how much this depends on these assumptions, as long as you really interrogate what these assumptions are, and as long as you consider it will take doing something impossible or extremely unlikely. One thing that's worth pointing out is that a lot of these IAMs, they assume, for example, that electric vehicles won't be cost competitive until the end of the century. They assume that solar panels won't become cheaper faster. So I think that in some ways, we don't necessarily need to completely abandon these models as to change some of the assumptions that go into them. The important thing is to say that maybe, you know, if the model gives you an answer that says it's going to be impossible to do this in this cost-minimising way, you want to look into different scenarios that are more feasible, models that will limit the amount of land that you devote to BEX, or that will look into other technologies instead. You need to put in more constraints to your models when they give you something that looks this ridiculous. That doesn't mean they're totally useless. You simply want to be able to look at the futures that these models can describe, assess how likely they are, and make your choices accordingly.
So, you know, if I was sat in some, like, modelling central HQ and they said, okay, this is what we've got here when we run the scenario, it gives us this much BEX. I'd look at it, I'd look at the implications, I'd say, obviously that's not going to happen. Give me a scenario that is more expensive or that sets a cap on BEX. Show me what that one looks like. That's the one to aim for and not this negative emissions heavy scenario. And people have done stuff like that. So, you know, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to continue leaning on these a little bit, as long as we're very, very clear how limited they are in understanding how the future economy is going to evolve. All scenarios require fossil fuels to be essentially phased out over the next few decades, but the more rapidly you phase them out, the less negative emissions you'll need. So if people feel that a timescale for phasing out fossil fuels is unrealistic, or requires too much initial investment, you have to compare it to the alternatives, which are the expense of failing to do this, or the expense of trying to do something like this heavy BEX pathway. Because this might be the least cost pathway to 1.5 in a model with a certain set of assumptions that favours BEX, but those assumptions can be wrong, and you can't expect the free market to follow the path that minimises the cost of doing things overall. It just won't do that, because every actor has different incentives, different costs, and different benefits. There are plenty examples of cases where you don't do the thing that would minimise the cost of the whole of society, because you're focused on minimising the cost to yourself. Even if there was a global carbon tax which tried to even out who gets some of the costs and who gets some of the benefits, it's still not clear that people are going to act in this rational way all the time. We see this in biofuels all the time. And more to the point, (laughs) when you deploy these models, the model is bound to find some way, uh, almost by law, to get in below the carbon budget. And those restrictions, those mechanisms do not exist in society. We can't impose a restriction on everyone to act in a way that means they'll stay below a certain temperature target. And therefore, (laughs) wondering whether this sort of future is going to materialise, you can see how unlikely it is. I think looking at these scenarios is good, in some ways because of how ridiculous they are. Because the one thing that is always true is that the faster we cut emissions now, reducing energy consumption, turning away from fossil fuels, building out renewables, electrifying everything the less of this crazy stuff we're saving up for ourselves to have to do at the end of the century. If rapid action seems hard, considering how hard the alternative is, should focus your mind a little bit. For me, what this modelling shows is that negative emissions at the type of scale that's needed to make a meaningful dent in climate is extremely difficult to deliver, as we've talked about in terms of Hornigold's law. And if they're going to happen at all, you probably need to deploy lots of different technologies all at once. A BEX-only future might be economically optimal, but it's a fantasy. If you decide you need negative emissions, you need to consider other technologies that can deliver them as well. Whether there's any synergy between deploying these technologies together, whether they compete for land or water or energy use will come onto, and above all the cost of doing more than one of these, rather than just assuming that you can get all of your negative emissions from nice profitable BECs. And thankfully we're starting to see the modelling community toning down the assumptions on what BECs can do, looking into the other negative emissions and coming up with scenarios that aren't this unrealistic. Because I think a lot of people would feel like this sort of thing has been quite a big distraction for actually focusing on real decarbonisation, instead coming up with these crazy fantasies where we plant trillions of tonnes of biofuel crops and burn them, you know, it just just doesn't seem like what's really going to happen. So I do think that bioenergy probably can play a role in power generation. And if you're doing that already and you want negative emissions too, and you have a framework in place that will actually pay to deliver those negative emissions, 
then it may make sense to equip at least some bioenergy plants with CCS, and deliver some negative emissions this way. There is something to be said that you are offsetting the cost of the negative emissions by generating power at the same time. And particularly when you're talking about stuff that is usually wasted or the really high yield crops, if you can do it in a sustainable way, then it will have some niche role and the potential to kill two birds with one stone with some nice baseload power generation and some negative emissions. That's attractive to pursue as far as it goes. But we need to be extremely mindful of the many different boundaries that BEX can brush up against. We need to be mindful of the assumptions in how our society is going to evolve that we're embedding when we follow these models down their twisting alleyways. And these assumptions include basic things like the idea that the economy grows without end, and that the fossil fuel industry will continue to exist with CCS. We certainly cannot expect BEX to scale up to this quite magical magnitude, and actually deliver the negative emissions that it's supposed to, without these damaging side effects on the global food system and environment, and without serious intervention and planning to make sure that this actually happens. And we need to make sure that the cure isn't worse than the disease if it really would involve turning over so much of world food and world agricultural production to create biofuels just to clean up our historic mess. Are the advantages really going to be better than the disadvantages? Those are the things you need to think about. And given how far we are from seeing any of this happening in in coming years, you can see why many people view this future as an unrealistic techno-fantasy. Because you can impose a rule on the model that we have to get into 1.5 degrees Celsius, but that's a long way from a rule that you can impose on reality. Life ain't like the movies, and life ain't like the models. In the next episode, having focused a little bit on the bioenergy side here, I want to look at the carbon capture and storage side, and really plough into the details of how we can capture and permanently store CO2. And I'm also going to talk about so-called utilisation of carbon dioxide. Are there any uses we can find for CO2 that might make it a bit less costly to just clean up our mess? And then we will move on to look at several, perhaps slightly less controversial approaches to negative emissions. Afforestation, planting trees, everyone loves it, and so-called nature-based solutions. Thank you for listening to this Climate 201 episode from Physical Attraction and coming with me on this journey through climate change and climate policy. I really appreciate it. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you will find the contact form, any comments, questions, concerns, things you would like me to explain in future episodes, please get in touch. I try to respond to all of the email I get there. And if it's a valid question, if it's a good question that helps uh, expand our understanding of climate change here, I will definitely put it in a future episode. You'll also find many ways there that you can support the show. You can support us through PayPal with a one-off donation. You know, (laughs) I used to listen to the Dan Carlin podcast, and one thing he always said was, if you saw me in the street, you'd buy me a cup of coffee, right? And uh, that's a similar sort of thing here. And if everyone bought me the equivalent of a cup of coffee, uh, not only would it produce more shows on my caffeine high, but also it would uh, help me pay the hosting costs. And it will, you know, help keep the independent media going in the face of the juggernauts that uh, are against us. Now, of course, there's also the Patreon page, patreon.com slash physical attraction. As I'm recording this episode, there are dozens of episodes that you can get there for a very, very low price. Um, uh, Early episodes that haven't yet been released on the main feed, and that will probably still be true by the time this is released. So please go there, check it out, subscribe and sign up, and you can get a hold of episodes that you won't be able to hear anywhere else, and that you will be able to hear many months in advance of waiting for them on the mainstream feed. And thank you so much to those of you who have already done that. The other thing you can do to support the show, of course, is to tell as many other people who may be interested to listen to it. 
Send them to the website, send them to the About page. Have them click through and find their favourite, best-looking episode. We've got a huge archive now of covering lots of different topics that I think there'll be something for everyone in there. So please do take a look there and enjoy that. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope that you're doing okay. Until next time, then, please do take care.